perspective in our lives. How important is it that we have the right perspective? And what I mean by that is that we see the end from the beginning. We see the whole, the whole story, not just the beginning, not just where we're at, but where we're heading. And for instance, if you're taking a, uh, if you're taking a, a class at school and uh, you know you're going to have a test at the end, you prepare for it, don't you? Perspective causes you, motivates you to prepare for that test that's coming up. You really need perspective or you have a final project, right? You get to college, they don't uh, take care of you as much as they did in high school. They tell you, you have a final project due this day and be ready for it. And they kind of leave it up to you to uh, prepare, to, uh, to schedule yourself in such a way that you are ready for that final project and you don't do it the day of. <laughs> perspective is so important. When running a, a race, perspective is everything. Running a marathon, you have 26.2 miles. You can't start off with a sprint. <laughs> you won't make it. You have to know how far you have to go. You have to have perspective. Or how about this one? When vacation is coming and you're, you're, you're feeling like you're about to fall apart, you just can't make it. But you know a few days ahead is vacation. All of a sudden, joy fills your heart, doesn't it? <laughs> All of a sudden, you, you come up with a strength you didn't have before, right? And you're able to work hard with strength that you never knew you had. Because of perspective. How important is perspective if you are to live the Christian life well? How important is it that you have perspective of what is ahead of you? That you live with the end in view? Otherwise, we will live with discouragement and otherwise idols. Those things we love of this world will look so much more tempting and they will take our hearts from us if we do not live with the right perspective. So God helps us, giving us a perspective of where everything is headed in these verses that we just looked at. God tells us this is where history is leading. This is the path that history is going on. And first, God gives us a shockingly bright picture of what awaits his believing people from Israel and the world. In verse 14, let me read these verses and look at what God says about where Israel is headed. Look at the bright future that God speaks of here. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. And there's no other, no God besides him. Look at how bright the future looks for God's people and the world. The wealth of the various nations is being brought. They're willingly giving them their treasures. They're bringing it to Israel, to God's faithful, believing people. The nations are not only bringing treasures here, but they're bringing themselves 
as if they've been taken captive in war and they're willingly enslaving themselves to Israel, God's people. This is the picture you would see of war. But the strange thing is that they are doing this willingly. They're bringing themselves, they're bowing to Israel. And they're pleading with Israel, saying, Surely God is in you. There is no other God besides you. The confession is that there is only one true God, that their idols have been found out to be faulty. Their idols do not work. All the other things they worshipped were not working. But the God of Israel is the true God, so they're not really bowing down to Israel here. It's not like they're worshipping Israel in that sense of bowing down. What they're saying is they are submitting themselves to the God of Israel. Because connected to Israel here is the true God. To bow to Israel here refers to bowing to the true God and following him. Because connected to Israel is the true God, just as much as connected to the other nations are the idols that they serve. So that they are transferring their loyalty. They are turning to the living God. So the question is, where in the world have we seen anything like this happening? Is this something that has happened or is it merely in the future? Something we're looking at. And I think we have seen this happen. How about the Magi who came to Jesus at his birth? How about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, verse 25 through 40? How about the gospel spreading through the Jews, through God's people, throughout the ends of the world? And how about the Gentiles streaming in as we saw in Isaiah chapter 2? Embracing the gospel. God also gives us a shockingly dark picture of what awaits all those who persist in unbelieving idolatry throughout the world in verse 16. Listen to this. And let's gain a perspective of what awaits those who continue in idolatry. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. Now the Babylonians and those throughout the whole world represent those who are idolatrous, those who bow down to false gods. And what it says here that the road that they are, that they are pursuing, the road that they are traveling on will only lead to everlasting shame. It will only lead to their own judgment, to their own destruction. Their idols cannot save them. They are bound to frustration and shame. That is the only place that idolatry will lead you. And God says, this is your destination. This is what the road you're headed on. But also notice in contrast to the dark picture of unbelieving idolatry, notice that God also gives a picture of the bright future that awaits believers who worship the true God. And there's a contrast here in verse 17. From verse 16, we have the one but. In verse 17, we see the contrast where that road is headed. The road of submission to God. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Now obviously Israel is referring to believers. Those who are trusting in God. Because it's talking about everlasting salvation. Not everyone in Israel is going to be saved, right? So this is referring to believers. Those who are trusting in God. Those who have connected themselves with Israel. And those who are believing in Israel's God. Just like the nations are streaming in. 
right? Those who persist in worshiping God will receive everlasting salvation. And this is the road that faith and belief in God, looking to God, trusting in God, this is where that road ends. It cannot end anywhere else. It will end up in everlasting joy, in everlasting salvation, without shame. There is no shame for those who are walking down this path and those who worship God. Now notice the difference here is not those who prayed a prayer and those who didn't pray a prayer. The difference is not those who went to church and those who didn't go to church. The difference is those who worshipped false idols versus those who worshipped the true God. That's the difference here. Both roads will lead to different destinations. And that's the perspective we need to have. God gives us one more view of the future here in these verses that awaits everyone throughout time. Both believer and unbeliever. And we need to see time is marching towards this goal. God is leading history towards this goal. And we see this in verses 23 through 25. And listen to these words again. They're worth repeating. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incense against him. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Now, when God is making a solemn vow, how would he make the greatest vow possible? How would he make it as secure as possible, as sure as you could possibly make it? Well, you would obviously swear by the greatest one you could think of, right? You'd make your vow based on the greatest person there is, right? And who is the greatest of all? And the answer is God, right? And so he, God, swears by God. God makes his vow based on God because there's no one greater to make. So it already was sure, as sure could be, but now he's trying to emphasize it, I guess. (laughs) I want you to know that this is going to happen more than sure that it will happen. He bases it on himself. Hebrews 6 verse 13 makes the same point. What does God promise or swear? Now here is the perspective you need to have. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess allegiance to God. That is where history is headed. And I want you, yourself, so that we can understand the practical nature of this, to look at your knees. One day your knee will bow. Every one of our knees will bow to God. And you won't be able to do any other. Your knee will bow and your tongue will confess. Even if it's been tied and cut off your whole life, one day the only utterance that can possibly come from your mouth is that God is truly Lord. Those who bow by faith today will bow by sight in that day and there will be accompanied to that bowing a victorious, joyful heart (laughs) cry that will come from you. This is my God. This is the one who has saved me. This is the one who is saving me and we are victorious in him. 
Those who have lived by faith, by worshiping God on this earth, will one day stand before him and declare victory in your Savior as you bow to him and rejoice with joy in your God and Savior. Your trust will be vindicated on that day. But for those who refuse to bow by faith today, who practice idolatry, on that day they will bow in fear and terror at the sight of God because of his impending judgment that is coming on them. They will be terrified, but they will know that he is God. And they will not be able to say other. There's nothing more offensive, is there, in this idolatrous, pluralistic society than to say this. Than to say what God says right here, that there is only one God and there is none other. The highest virtue in our pluralistic society is to acknowledge that every belief is equally valid. People boast of this, don't they? This is something that is of highest virtue to the world around us. Uh, just recently, I was doing a funeral, and one of the, the um, funeral directors um, boasted to me about how they do not have a preference either way. Well, it says right here that that is not true. It does matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. There is a right and there is a wrong. And what's amazing is that Paul quotes from this in reference to Jesus in Philippians 2, verse 10 through 11. One of the greatest testimonies that Jesus is God <laughs> is that he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God. Lord. He puts Jesus Christ right there. <laughs> so now we have a view of the future. Now we have a perspective of what awaits us, right? But you might say, as you look at this, that it appears like God is playing hide and seek. If you were to compare the future with what we see today, you might conclude that it appears that God is hiding. Because <laughs> this is nothing like what it appears today, is it? What we know is in the future where time is heading is nothing like what we see when we look around us. So we say God must be hiding. <laughs> and that's what Isaiah says in verse 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel the Savior. If God were to hide himself, figuratively speaking, from our view, what would it look like? Well, you might say, well, it would kind of look like the idols of this world are kind of working, right? It would look like a people who were following and worshiping false gods were kind of successful, maybe making a lot of money, maybe being victorious over God's people at times, Right? Wouldn't you say that would kind of be, and the, the church would kind of look small in the world, and, and, and the world would kind of look big? You might say, well, that would be kind of God hiding himself from us, in a sense. See, if you, you were to look at Israel at the time when it was written, it would look like God was hiding. Remember verse 14, that glorious, bright future? Well, they were in the darkness of captivity, 
They were hardly even a nation at this time. They looked small and insignificant. It looked like the God of Israel has failed. When you look at the condition of the true worshipers of God in light of the shockingly bright perspective of Israel's future, you have to say it looks like God is hiding himself. How about the Babylonians? If you were to look at the Babylonians, it would look like God was hiding himself. What did they look like? They were the greatest nation. They were the most powerful nation on earth. They had subjugated God's people and brought them to basically nothing. They looked great. Surely God is hiding himself. If you were to look at the church today, it would look like God is hiding himself, wouldn't it? We don't look like that great of an empire, do we? And we know that God often chooses the weak and foolish things to make himself known. You can barely see the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth when you look around you at the church. Oh, it is there, but sometimes it is hard to see, isn't it? If you were to look at the coming of Christ, it would look like God was hiding, wouldn't it? He came from little insignificant Israel. He was born in a stable. As a baby, he took on flesh. God veiled in flesh. He came to die on a cross. Surely God is hiding. (laughs) But all of this hiding is exactly what God said it would be like, isn't it? Remember, Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. Right, the smallest of all seeds, but then it grows and even the birds of the air nest on its branches and it's all-consuming. Well, that is the perspective of the future, isn't it? But truly, it looks small and insignificant. It's even hard to see from our perspective. You know, the mysterious plan is what Paul refers to in Romans 11, verse 33, when he said, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and untraceable his ways. So in light of this great perspective and the way things appear, you might wonder, how do we know these things are true? How can we know that God is true in what he says? That he is credible? I mean, can anyone say such incredible things in light of what we see around us and possibly be trusted as able to fulfill them? How do we know God can back up these claims? Because you look around you and it doesn't look possible. Well, God says what makes these claims credible is his identity in verse 18. Listen to verse 18. God says, my words are true based on my identity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is no other. So what makes God's claims true? How do we know that what God says is true? What backs it up? What supports it? What gives us evidence beyond anything else that God is true? And what what, what God says here, the argument God makes here is what makes my words true is that I am the creator. 
I am the creator. I stand outside of creation. I am the only one who is outside of creation. Everything else is a created thing. And therefore, I direct all of history. I direct everything to fulfill my purposes. It is all mine. And I do with what I have made what I want to do. And it is fulfilling every purpose that I have established it to fulfill. And the basis of all of this is that I am the creator. Notice the four verbs here. I formed, created, made, established. (laughs) As if God is emphasizing something here. And because he is creator, he'll accomplish every purpose he sets out to do. Regardless of what it appears like to our eyes. This is what separates the true God from all imposter idols. Everything else is part of the creation that he has made. These idols are going to fail. They are derived from creation. They were never meant to save. They have no power to do anything. Now, they might appear successful for a time, right? And that's because God allows them to. Where they should be thanking God that they even exist, like a piece of wood exists, <laughs> right? Or, or, or the Babylonians appear successful. That is all God's grace. That is all God's kindness to them. So they might appear successful for a time, but no more than what God allows them to exist for. Therefore, you can count on everything God says to be true and right and not in vain. And history is the testimony of God's truthfulness. Look at verse 19. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. The testimony of God's word, of his working throughout history, through Jacob and his offspring, is testimony that God's word is not in vain. We are to look at God's testimony and we are to see the truthfulness of God's word. God did not tell Jacob to seek me in vain. And we look at his experience with God and we say, God is true and his word is faithful. You can therefore trust his word. You can know that he will accomplish everything he says, no matter how fantastic it appears, no matter how impossible it appears, No matter how improbable it might sound, God never speaks in vain. And what he says is true and right. God saves. And so to prove it, God calls the nations together again. He keeps doing this over and over again. It's like a pattern. And he keeps calling the nations together. And what he does is kind of a court case to prove to them and reason to them that he is the true God. This really isn't a competition. I've said that before. But it's just God showing the nations that he is God. And we see that in verses 20 through 21. And what I want us to understand in these verses is that God stops partway through his his court case, where he's showing who he is, that he is the only God. And he stops and says, I have very little here to work with. He, he He says, I am working with unreasonable people. God is arguing with those who have no knowledge, who pray continuously to those who cannot save. Their wood cannot save them, but they trust them anyway, and they know it. They lack the basic understanding for life. There is nothing in this world as foolish as idolatry, and we as a church 
In this age where idols are praised and glorified and exalted, we need to be reminded that there is nothing at all as foolish. I don't care where you go or where you look, there is nothing that could ever be as foolish as idolatry. We said a couple weeks ago, it's insane. It is the essence of insanity is idolatry. According to Romans 1 verse 21, this darkness of mind is because of our own sin. God gave us over to ourselves in our sin. Have you ever tried to reason with someone who has no knowledge and is unreasonable? How did it go? How gracious is God to stoop down and speak to us? What a gracious God we have. To such people, God makes an irrefutable argument about who he is, that he is able to predict the future and direct history to fulfill his purposes. He says, who has told us beforehand what's going to come about? And he says, I, the Lord, have done so. And remember, he said for the last couple chapters, he's been saying a couple times, I am raising up Cyrus by name over a hundred years before he comes. And this is exactly what comes to pass. Cyrus comes and delivers his people And that proves and shows that God is in control of history. That he is the creator. That he is outside of creation that he has made. And he is controlling and directing everything to fulfill his purposes. He is God. It's not even about God delivering his people. It's about God saying he's going to do it and fulfilling it before it comes to pass. This means that even though it might not appear so, it might be hard, it might not make sense, we might not want it to be true. Right? Sometimes our hearts fight against us and we don't want what God says to be true. His commandments rise up against our rebellious hearts, right? And then we look at what he says and everything around us looks so tempting and everything around us looks so good. The idols of our heart, we're so tempted to take hold of them and bow to them and love them and maybe put them on par with God. We're so tempted to do that. Right? But God says here that you can know that every word I say is true. Everything he says is true. Don't look with the uh, physical eyes and make determination what you see around us by your physical eyes. Look by faith in God's word and gain a perspective of reality from what God says. Because he is true. And you can trust his word. So in light of the perspective that God gives regarding the direction of history and what awaits us, what is the only legitimate response? You would think that the only response is to cower in fear and run away because only judgment awaits such idolatrous people. That is what is deserved here, isn't it? And you would think that that would be God's response, right? We are all in trouble and there is no hope. Well, listen to what he says in verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God would be right to leave us doomed in our idolatry. But praise God for his grace and his mercy. God provides salvation. Notice the simplicity of what he says here. What is required to be saved is to turn and look Turn and look. Turn to God. Just look. (laughs) Can you imagine anything simpler than that? Don't look to your righteousness. Don't look to your parents. Don't look to your church. 
Don't look to a confession that you prayed. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. There is no salvation in any other place but to Christ. And he calls us to look. And why is it so simple? Why is it so basic? And why do we rebel against it? Because it is all of God, isn't it? Looking here implies that it is not you who is going to save yourself. It is God who saves us. And to turn to him simply means to repent and believe. You know, repentance is turning away from idols. Now, you might say it doesn't say turn away from idols here, but you can never turn from anything else. <laughs> whenever you repent, whenever you turn, it's because you're turning from idols. Always, 100% of the time, every single time. If you're ever to turn, it's because you've turned to an idol. So what is implied here is that you're turning away from an idol. You're loving something in his place. You're worshiping something in his place. You're delighting in something in the place of God. And that's what repentance is, isn't it? Turning away from looking in the wrong direction for your salvation. Could be your deeds, your family, your church. They can't save you. But believe means to turn to Christ and worship. To worship him alone. And that's what we do when we confess Jesus is Lord. That's what faith is. Faith is worship. Faith is saying God is who he says he is. It's saying God is the one who alone can save me based on his work alone on the cross. He is the only one who can save. And so 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 summarizes this very well. When he talks to the Thessalonians and he says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what Jesus said in John 3 in reference to the snake in the wilderness of Numbers 21. Do you remember that story? The people were complaining against God, and so God started killing them off with snakes. And they were killing them, and they were dying. And so God told Moses to put a snake on a pole, and everyone who looked to that snake would live. And Jesus says the same thing with himself, that he is what that image represented, that he is the fulfillment of that. Everyone who looks to Jesus will live. He is the only salvation. So who does this apply to? To a special group of people on the earth? No, it says here, to the ends of the earth. Everyone without exception throughout the whole earth who looks to Jesus will live. He is not a local God that was so popular in the day. He is not a God of personal preference. He is the one and true and only God. There is no other. The only reason you can turn to God today, and think about this, is because the hidden God has revealed himself to you through his word and through his Holy Spirit. Praise God for his word that has revealed this hidden God to us, that we are so blind in our sins, we would never be able to find him without his word. And praise God for his Holy Spirit who opens our minds and our eyes to treasure and glory in the true God for who he is. On January 6th, 1850, a man, a 15-year-old man named Charles Spurgeon was trudging up the hill in Colchester on his way to church. Charles Spurgeon is one of my favorite preachers. And it says that a blizzard prevented him from going further. He turned the corner 
and made his way into a small primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. And so listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm on Sunday, one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, there was I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now, what does not take a, now, now that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man may, need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, he said, in broad Essex. Many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You will find comfort. You will not find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up this text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length, he managed to spin out ten minutes. He was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Then he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made upon my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. Their darkness had rolled away. At that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. You see, we are either worshiping God or worshiping idols. There is no other possibility. We either love God supremely or love other things supremely. We either treasure God above all things or treasure other things. And we are by nature and by choice idolaters like the nations. Our hearts are idol factories. Even as Christians, we revert back to our former ways, don't we? What makes idolatry so subtle and hard to identify is that it is often not merely the denial of God in our minds, but rather placing something with him in our hearts, which is the denial of God. We say, oh, I'll worship God in something else. I'll raise something else to the level of God, and I'll worship both. The problem is that God plus anything is to have nothing. God plus anything is subtraction. 
God requires exclusive loyalty and love or we can't have him at all. And we are called to say, your will be done and not my will. So what makes it hard to, to be free from these idols is that not only do we love them, but they appear to be working. Idols can so easily have a hold on us. It looks so good and so tempting and so desirous, the idols of this world. And sometimes it is hard to see God. And so this is my call to you this morning. If you are to fight idolatry, if you are to worship God in this life, you must keep a proper perspective alive in your minds. You must not only look to Christ, but you must gaze at Christ. Continue to look to him and keep the end in view at all times. This is the only way to keep our hearts in love with God. Things are not as they appear. So let us look to Christ. And perhaps you have not yet looked to Christ. So I call you today, look to Christ for the first time. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the goodness of your word, Lord. It speaks directly to the truth of our condition. It tells us, Lord, of our hopeless estate. Lord, we are lost. We are blind. We are dead. God, we are destroying ourselves. And we thank you, God. We thank you for the light of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work that Christ did on the cross, for purchasing salvation for us. God, I pray that you would save today. I pray that you would bring us to our knees today before it is too late. God, may we bow before you and confess that you alone are Lord, willingly and joyfully and repentantly. And God, I pray for all of us, Lord. It is so easy to get caught up in the idols of this world. It is so easy to lose sight of the most glorious and magnificent God. Lord, the one who has purchased our salvation. Lord, may we never lose sight of you. Keep our eyes on you and your glory. And may you enable us to see your beauty so that we might live for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.